everyone. Welcome to episode 62 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, fresh off of playing some Legacy, some some giant monsters in Legacy at uh, SCG Baltimore, is That's Collins right. Mullen. Hey, Collins. What's up, Chris? Not much. How are you? I'm I'm doing pretty good. Uh, yeah, I played some some Legacy last weekend, which is always a blast. Legacy. Pretty sad that we don't have a ton of Legacy events to play in, but every time that we do have one, I'm always pumped to play in it. Not only because it's a fun format, but also I was reminded again just how awesome Legacy players are. I can feel a difference between playing in like a, a modern and a standard event and like in a Legacy event. The the whole atmosphere just seems like really. It's hard to describe, but really like inclusive, and you know, people are just kind of there to have fun and play this format that they enjoy. Gotcha. And I, I don't know. I just think that every time I play in a legacy event, I, I just see that again and see that the the culture just feels really inclusive and friendly, and I love that. It's definitely something I love about Magic in general, but it really shows up well in legacy events. Boy, that really. Makes it smart a little bit that Legacy is just slowly dying and there's kind of nothing that we can do about it. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Um, right, rest in peace Legacy. But they still have some events and they're still giving it an open or so every year. Just very hard to sustain Yeah, the current state of the reserve list and, and card prices in general. For sure. So today we are going to not do too much super hard-hitting strategy. We'll talk about Legacy a little bit since you're fresh off the weekend. Yep. But we are going to talk about the Open, and then we've got some pretty significant sort of meta stuff to talk about, mostly surrounding Worlds, uh, Jerry T, sort of the, the Wizards' response to his deciding not to play in the tournament out of protest. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we're going to try to unpack. Yeah. And then since my first episode back, we had to spend going card by card through <laughs> Guilds of Ravnica, I wasn't able to do much of a sort of Europe, European magic tour wrap up sort of thing. So yes. I'll, you know, we'll spend a few minutes just sort of talking about what my thoughts are about that whole experience and, and hopefully be able to share a little bit of my impressions uh, with everyone on that. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, it should be fun. Before we get started, I want to take just a quick second to thank our patrons. Really, really appreciate the support. New patrons this week, we want to thank Eric. Uh, thank you guys so much for supporting us. We have tokens that we should have by SEG Columbus, I think is when those Inkling Customs tokens are going to get delivered. That's coming up in a couple of weeks. So pretty soon, uh, we will be sending those out to all patrons. And uh, so those we actually went ahead and got foil versions of those tokens. So they should be pretty cool. Very looking. nice. So if you want to get your hands on these this matched set of Karn tokens for, for new standard, then definitely sign up. And we will be sort of updating our our Patreon rewards and stuff and making sure that they all, you know, make sense going forward from here. Um, that'll be something we'll be announcing in the next couple of weeks. But for now, definitely, if you'd like to come hang out in the Discord, get some tokens, that sort of thing, go ahead and sign up. Go to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. I still got my fingers crossed for the, the front half, back half of the horse costume. That's definitely next. <laughs> <laughs> definitely next. We will get to work on that. Sweet. Well, we'll kick things off with a Keeper Mall, as we do. Uh, this one, I... This is not the most serious Keeper Mall we've ever done. This is from a uh, Star City stream versus stream of new standard, like, week zero decks. 
and this was, I, I believe, Ross Miriam's deck. He was playing against Todd, and this was post-board, uh, on the draw, versus sort of like green-black, stompy mid-range. Ross is playing a Naya Tokens deck. And I figured we might as well, you know, we've done enough modern Keeper Mulls. We might as well look at brand new standard and get something kind of exciting in here. And there's a pretty interesting hand. So this is on the draw with a Tokens sort of Convoke kind of deck. It's Naya uh, for heroic reinforcements, and then just a lot of the kind of green and white cards you would expect for this sort of deck. Uh, Amara, Soul of the Accord, uh, Shauna, Sisei's Legacy, uh, March of the Multitudes, Legion's Landing, History of Benalia, and Venerated Loxodon as like a you know pretty solid payoff card that I'm a big fan of. So this hand was a seven on the draw, three lands, two Sacred Foundries, and a Temple Garden, two Venerated Loxodons a Legion's Landing, and a March of the Multitudes. So do you have any initial thoughts about this hand? So this hand is is pretty tough to evaluate because we're playing this new deck, right? So we're not as experienced with just kind of like in general what the draws look like. Yeah. So and our, I guess we should say what the cards do for anyone who hasn't been paying sure. super close attention to the spoilers. Yeah, definitely. Two Sacred Foundries and one Temple Garden. Those are all the new Shocklands. Or not not new, but reprinted Shocklands. And then it has two of the Venerated Loxodon. This is the new 5-mana Convoke 4-4 that when it enters the battlefield, you give a plus one plus one counter to each creature used to Convoke it. And then one March of the Multitudes, which is the new Convoke X green white white spell that creates a bunch of... Uh, it creates X 1-1 one, one lifelink tokens, essentially. So the, the the hand is a little tough, right? Because, you know, we have our three lands and we have all of our mana colors, which is nice. But we, our hand isn't really curving out very well. Mm-hmm. We have a we have Legion's Landing as a, as a turn one play, so we can get a body down. But then we have these two Venerated Loxodons and, you know, one March the Multitudes. Uh, so these are kind of more of our, like, payoff cards. We don't want these in our opening hand as much as we want to be able to, like, you know, curve into them later on. Although I think Venerated Loxodon, we're pretty happy to have in the opening. Oh as yeah, as long I mean, as we know the card is definitely there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that it's it's bad to have in your opening, like like a you know an eight drop or something like right, that. Right, right. But we we're kind of missing the uh, the early drop elements in our in our opening seven. Right. So kind of one of the Mulligan philosophies, I guess, is that the hand that you keep should enact the plan that your deck is presenting. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what makes this specific hand tough is because, you know, we, we have a general idea of what we want that plan to look like. But, you know, in terms of actually implementing the plan, without any experience with the deck, you're not going to know uh, how important it is to hit those early creatures. Mm-hmm. I would assume that it's very important to hit those early creatures. I think so. But, it, you know, if the game, if, if this deck can still play a really strong late game and, like, only play the Legion's Landing, maybe turn four, play a Loxodon, which isn't great, but you still get a 4-4 four, four, and then, like, a token, so mm-hmm. you're on the board. But that's kind of, like, you know, later on. So I think that in order for this hand to really come together, we're going to need to draw into... Some more creatures up until the curve. Right. Really right. just one thing. Yeah. If we draw one or a two drop in our first two draws in this hand, I think is excellent. Right. So in order to answer that question, we kind of have to look at the deck list and see how many hits do we have for mm-hmm. a good thing to play. And honestly, I'd be happy to even just like be able to play if we on turn two hit another one drop or something, that would be perfect. Fine. Because on turn three, we could play one of our Loxodons and, and then we're cooking. Right. Yep. 
So if we if we look at the number of hits that we have for turns two and three, I guess, we've got four Amara, we have three District Guides, three Shanas, and one Snubhorn Sentry. Mm-hmm. And three more Legions Landings. Oh yeah, and the three, three more Legions Landings. And History of Benalia, if we're willing to wait until turn three to put to put more stuff on the board. Right, right. And I think that, you know, turn one, a one drop, and then turn two, nothing, turn three is fine because we have some pretty hefty payoff in our hand already. Yeah. So, you know, if we determine that we have enough hits and and we like our odds to hit one of those things by turn three, and we're on the draw, remember, so we're more likely to be able to draw into one of those things that fill out that curve mm-hmm. that, that we need in order to enact our plan. If we feel like we have enough hits to hit one of those things by turn three... You know, after three draw steps, then I then I think I would keep this hand. But if we determine that it's if it's so crucial that we have one of those things, and the percentage chance of us hitting that thing is only like thirty percent or something, mm-hmm. I'd probably mulligan this hand. Look at a six, a six with a scry on the draw. Remember, is still very powerful, or not very powerful, but still still fine. You know, you're you're going to be able to function pretty much just as close to, to normally on a on a decent seven if, mm-hmm. if your six is good. Sure. Because being on the draw mitigates that card disadvantage that you're you're getting a little bit, and that scry kind of gives you the extra consistency as well. I think that I would have to do the math on how many hits do I have, how many draw steps do I have. Just kind of doing that on the fly right now, then, you know, I'm looking at 4, 7, 10, maybe around 19 hits. So 19 times... Well, I just typed this into a geometric hypergeometric calculator with, you know, 53 cards left in the deck and 19 cards left that we want to draw. Mm-hmm. And this is this is saying by turn three and including history of Benalia and stuff, because I think that's a fine yeah, yeah. result. I agree. And so we actually have almost a 75% chance to okay. at least hit one. If we don't hit one, I think that we lose. <laughs> I think we're pretty close to 25% to lose this game, you know, right. if we keep this hand. Yeah. But 75% is pretty high. That's and pretty this hand decent. has a lot of power if we hit yeah yeah so i i think that i you know after knowing those numbers and these kinds of numbers are things that it's hard to do on the fly you can kind of like estimate the percentages on the fly but when you're testing it's important to pay attention to these kind of situations so that you know while you're testing you you can you can figure out those numbers and then when you're playing in a tournament for example you can have those numbers on on hand a little bit yeah yeah no i like having the calculator available during testing because Mm -hmm. now i know if i've got almost 20 outs and I've got three draws, like that's a 75% right. chance. And that's, that's really high. Um, and then in the tournament, if I have any sort of similar question, then I already have that knowledge. Yeah. If, if I had done the testing and, and I had those numbers ready and I could figure out that it was about 75% to, to hit for me, then yeah, then I think that a 75% chance to turn this hand into almost a perfect draw of like one drop into, you know, a venerated loxodon into March the multitudes later. Mm-hmm. And then you can you can probably even one of the powers of Venerated Loxodon and March is that I I could see turn five or something marching for like four and then on the same turn or marching for five or you know or something depending on how many creatures we get lucky enough to draw on the same turn as you march you can then use those creatures to cast your Venerated Loxodon. Yeah, I was I was um, actually waiting to say that that happened in one of these games mm-hmm, that yeah like uh, it was. Turn five, I think he had had a solid curve, like played a guy on turn turn three, played a history on turn, played a guy on turn two, played a history on turn three, got a guy killed, played another guy on turn four. Yeah. And then on turn five, just played March for five, 
played Venerated, locks it on, make, make all those two-twos. lifelink guys two twos, yeah. and there was just no Huge way. Huge board state. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, and, and because this hand has that upside, then more willing to take the risk, right? right. Because it definitely has a really, really strong late game if you can get there. Yeah. And that combo, honestly, that like venerated locks out on March of the Multitudes combo mm-hmm. kind of raises March of the Multitudes power yeah. level, in right. my opinion. It's I think it's a little better than I thought during our set review after watching it play out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. People kind of underestimate how strong Convoke is. Mm-hmm. And especially in a, when combined with token makers, you'd be really surprised how often you're just casting things for free. Yeah. Especially with the token makers. Yeah. Even even just like multi, March of the Multitudes can combo really well with each other. If you like pass the turn, march for eight, untap, march for a billion, you know. <laughs> right. And I think this might be sort of like a board controlling sort of format like mm-hmm. that where like a lot of the removal might not line up so well, so people are mostly trying to play lots of power and toughness, and yes. this is a way of just making way more power and toughness than your opponent right. has access to. Yeah, for sure. Again, I want to highlight the importance of making sure that each of your hands that you keep need to be able to enact the plan of your deck. Yep. And because we're looking at this hand from that perspective, we can see that the only piece that we're missing from enacting our plan is one of those like earlier creatures Mm -hmm. and we have all the other pieces to enact our plan so then you can you know you do the math on figuring out the piece and and make your decisions from there yeah so that's i think a good takeaway from this uh this keeper model yeah and it it should be said that i think it's okay to be a little bit less picky in standard than in modern Mm -hmm. even with a pretty linear deck like this which kind of has a sort of similar uh, mulliganing philosophy to many modern decks, you know, we're not as linear and we're not as concerned with having our plan executed as quickly as possible. Being down cards just tends to hurt more in standard, but yeah. it still pays off to be picky a fair amount of the time. Yeah, yeah. It it depends a lot, I think, on the the power level potential of your deck. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if your power level potential is, is kind of a, a little lower, then, you know, you're, you're going to need to keep more hands just because you need to be able to sure. to, to trade do that. cards yeah but I, th- I think that the power level of this deck is has potential to be very high so cool well how was your legacy weekend it was how great we- i played uh, eldrazi post it's a very sweet deck uh it was pretty sweet ulamog is my best friend <laughs> <laughs> me and ulamog go way back and uh it was nice to be able to cast him again i i of ugin is just a broken magic card. It's, it's just busted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, after playing with it, I can easily see how it would be banned in, in modern. Just because if, if if I wasn't playing against a deck that had Wasteland in it, I thought that my percentage's chance to win was very, very high. Mm-hmm. And that even included the, the combo decks, which I expected to, to be a little weak to. Yeah. Just because I had so many like good disruptive elements for the combo decks in Trinisphere and Chalice of the Void. Mm-hmm. So I had I had the deck has those decks figured out a little bit by the chalice stuff um, and the and the Trinisphere stuff uh, and then the any any kind of fair deck you can kind of bring out like the Trinispheres and the and the chalices you still keep in some number of those because they can still be pretty strong against like Grixis control or miracles mm-hmm. but neither Grixis control nor miracles can end the game very quickly right which allows you to just make your land drops and if one of those land drops is an Ivugan. They're just never beating, tutoring your deck for a Kozilek and drawing seven cards or something sure, like that. Sure. So, uh, so those matchups felt really good. The 
the matchups that did not feel good, however, were decks that included uh, Life from the Loam and Wasteland. I, I saw that you <laughs> struggled against them on day one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, day one, I was 5-0 and because I played against a bunch of fair decks, I think, in, initially. Oh, one of my rounds, I played against Grixis Reanimator on camera. I saw that round. But, you know, aside from that, I played a bunch of, of mid-range decks and just kind of, like, easily beat them just because my plans were better than theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, or lined up well against theirs, I should say. But then I played against three Life and Loam Wasteland decks in a row. <laughs> their their plan uh, lines up pretty well and, against you. Yeah, when when I'm trying to play a bunch of you know soul lands and everything, and my opponent's just wastelanding me every turn. <laughs> That's cards tough. cards that are hard to beat are are Life and Loam and Knight of a Reliquary is another one that's played in the Agro Loam deck. Okay, it's just uh, a lot of wastelands. Yeah, and that's just like four wastelands, and I'm and then they hit me twice with a twelve twelve or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so the you know those matchups are pretty rough. I think that they could potentially be fixed by the inclusion of more mana rocks, such as Thran Dynamo would be a pretty good one or two of mm-hmm. if I wanted to hedge a little more towards the wasteland decks. Because sure. if you can land those mana rocks, then you kind of have access to mana that they can't really interact with, which is really important. Because if you're able to cast your Reality Smashers and your Thought Not Seers against this deck, then you're going to be fine and you're going to beat them because their their things aren't that that good. You know, uh, Not a beating those giant... Right, right, right. And if they have a knight that's active, you, you know, you're, you're not going to have enough mana anyway, so that's... Right. You know. So I think that if I played the deck again, I would probably try to uh, refigure out the, the distribution of the mana rocks. I ended up playing four Grim Monoliths, mm-hmm. and I really love the four Grim Monoliths. Really important for casting turn one Trinisphere. Even something like turn one, Soul End, Chalice, turn two you can Grim Monolith into a Reality Smasher. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if your opponent's a one-drop deck, it's going to take them more than four turns to get out of that situation, typically. Sure. So that that curve is lights out for any deck that is weak against Chalice of the Void. But, yeah, I think that against, you know, especially when these lone decks are getting more popular, Bob Huang has definitely been carrying the banner for that deck a little bit. Mm-hmm. It won the Open. Yeah. So it's only going to get more popular, at right. least for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I also saw uh, Drake Sasser on camera play against Blackguard Reanimator, and his opponent had nothing, and then his opponent had a Magus of the Moon. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it did 20, because right. he never drew a Grim Monolith. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, no, that was uh, that was Dylan Hand, I think. Oh, was it? Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, Dylan Hand got beat down on camera by <laughs> for, for 10 turns by a... That's right, you played Drake... And he was playing Reanimator. I right? played Drake Sasser on Reanimator. Okay. Dylan was on camera in day two uh, against the Magus of the Moon. The turn after the the match after that, okay. I played against Dylan Hand, and he was telling me all about that That's story. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. On Br- brutal. One of the funny stories I think for the weekend was I played uh, round ten, so the first round of day two. I played against Greg Gentle, who. Played the essentially seventy four out of the seventy five that I decided to play this weekend. Previously at the classic last weekend, okay. So he was the deck list that I copied off of essentially, <laughs> and I played him in round ten, and I would I assume to be close to a seventy four card mirror. <laughs> he, I ended up like playing him matter reshaper, and he killed it. And I flipped a Kozilek on top of on top on the top of my deck, and I was I just kind of like slyly looked at it and put it in my hand, <laughs> and and he was like, after this match, I have so many questions, and I already knew that we were playing the same seventy five, but I didn't want to like tell him that before our match. <laughs> but he, I think he figured it out. At the yeah, point. yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was fun. I actually played Greg in the quarters 
of my uh, living end open topic. Did you really? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. He was a he was a cool guy. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Um, for sure. He was a very good sport about the game where he locked me out on turn one, relic into chalice. Oh, nice. But then drew not no lands, and so I just played a fairy macabre in a street wraith and beat him with those cards. Fair enough. I guess that can happen. <laughs> yeah. Another funny story from that weekend was in the last round of the tournament, I played against uh, Painter Servant. And in game one, I my opponent was on the play. He went, I think, a mountain go. I played a Eldrazi Temple and passed the turn. And then he played, you know, another mountain and played Painter Servant named Blue. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. And I untapped and I played a second Eldrazi Temple and I tried to cast Thought Not Seer. And he was like, "No, no, no! That spell's blue. You can't, you can't tap your, you can't tap your Eldrazi temples for colorless spells because it's blue." Oh my god! And I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> that's so bad. That's so bad." Painter um, servant just is a wasteland, right? Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. So, but I thought it was hilarious, and we had a good laugh about it. And then I got him back though later in the same game because I ended up casting an Allah's Dust. And we had to sacrifice <laughs> all, your all of our permanents. <laughs> but I was ready, and I had concocted this plan where I had, like, a matter shaper out to trigger, and I also had, like, sandbagged a couple of lands. And Legit. then I slammed my all this dust, and then I slammed a reality smasher the next turn. <laughs> so I was able to steal that game off of him. He got the match, but but yeah, that was just, you know, Legacy's great. I, I love that. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, those interactions are... It takes an eternal format for those things to happen, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So the meta ended up looking a little bit weird. Zero Miracles decks in the top 32 yeah. of this whole tournament. Yeah. So I I guess maybe it was the amount of Grixis control running around, and that's kind of a tough matchup for Miracles. There, I don't know if there yeah. are theories running around about why that might be. There could be a couple of reasons. This Eldrazi post deck is taking up in popularity. Yeah. One of the players made top eight, and Dylan Hand and I were also playing it, and Greg Gentle. So mm-hmm. it was actually uh, pretty well represented in day two. Sure. And Miracles can't ever beat Eldrazi Post. Yeah. And also, I assume that the Grixis decks are getting a little more tuned to be able to beat these Miracles decks mm-hmm. as well. So probably a, a couple of factors involved in um, Miracles not having as much success. Yeah, just surprising to see zero copies of it, you know, oh, yeah, and so sure. consistently at the top of the metagame. Right. Yeah, I played it a couple of times on day one, but I assume that if the Miracles players kept on running into Eldrazi Post and... Uh, you know, the Grixis control matchup is close. I think closer than people expect, but I do think that Grixis is favored. Like, Grixis's goal is, like, resolve a him to Turok, and if that ever happens, then there's a lot of trouble. There are just a lot of really good angles that Grixis has against that deck. The the mana, converted mana cost distribution in Grixis is pretty wide and, sure. and different from the Miracles deck, uh, which gives you equity against cards like Counterbalance. I can't counterbalance a Gurmag Angler. Right. And if you can ever just kind of like resolve a Jace or something like that, then, sure. you know, Miracles doesn't have a lot of good ways of getting Planeswalkers off the board. Jace and Liliana the Last Hope can be lights out, you know, if you can protect it well enough. But yeah, it was a good weekend. I, I definitely had a lot of fun. Uh, congratulations to Rossum for making finals of another Open. Yeah. That finals match was pretty interesting to watch. I think that Rossum actually could have won game two had he decided to continue playing it. His, his tweet out, I missed it because I was watching Worlds at the time, mm-hmm. but his, his tweet afterward, it definitely sounded like he was not happy with his play yeah. in the finals. Yeah, I, I think that there might he might have something psychological about playing in the finals of Opens at this point and individually because he has like three losses, which is really great. He's made yeah, finals of three, three finals. You know, but, uh, but yeah, I can definitely get to him. Essentially, you know, I don't know how much we want to go into this, but he 
he enacted a pretty good plan of resolving Blood Moon, having a Jason play, but then it got to the point where he had two Blood Moons out and a Jace on five, and his opponent had a Liliana of the uh, Veil on one that kept uh, was threatening to continue to tick up and mm-hmm. eventually ultimate. And Rossum decided to start brainstorming to try to find an answer for the the Liliana. Mm-hmm. But I think that at that point, when when Jace was on five and Liliana was on one, if if he just decides to start plussing just on the, his the opponent, pl- the ultimate race, you only need to bottom punishing fire mm-hmm. because you have all the lands locked out. Um, so Loaming isn't really doing much. I think that if he if he just tried to win the race against the Liliana, he would have been pretty favored. And also, when he conceded, the reason that he conceded was because his opponent eventually found ways of answering both Blood Moons and then had the Punishing Fire loop going. Wow. But that was so deep into the game that I think that his opponent might have only had, like, ten cards left in their library. Gotcha. And I just don't know if that's enough turns to keep a Jace from ultimating and a Liliana from ultimating and eventually killing Rossum before ten draw or like nine draw steps or something like that. Yeah. So I think it was a little bit of a hasty concession, but but we talked about it and it was close. Yeah. I know that that Jace decision, you know, when deciding to go to the fate seal when you're not like way ahead is a difficult, very all in yeah. sort of thing. So, oh for sure. So it's that's a hard choice to make. Like like it could easily be the right one, but there's definitely like a mental like well, I could just draw two cards a turn and I'll probably win, right. and that usually does it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, yeah, I totally get why that is tough. Right. I think the problem was that they there was a Liliana ticking up, so that that Liliana can kind of just like answer any threats that you play, make sure that you're not having like stocking a bunch of cards in your hand. Yeah. And that I think makes the Jace Brainstorm plan a little weaker. I you know I do think that Jace Brainstorm generally beats the Liliana upticks. Sure. But I think given the specific context, I don't know. Yeah. It was close. It's tough. I mean these these are. These are tough games. Like the format is very yeah. and you know decision. and Rossum was playing really well over the course of the weekend. He he went into day two six and three and just swept. Yeah, on day two, That's which impressive. was really impressive. And I was watching him play and and you know the plans that he was creating and enacting were very clean. So you know that's just that's that's clean magic for you. So yeah, good, good for him. Yeah, congrats to him. Um, we also saw Zan, another top sixteen. Yep. Um, Hunter Nance, a local player, but also relatively well known legacy. Yeah, Hunter, Hunter is kind of becoming a, a legacy aficionado. He doesn't really play any other format anymore. No, he only um, plays Final but, Fantasy TCG <laughs> and he Legacy. Plays, he plays Legacy or Final Fantasy TCGs. But every time he shows up to a Legacy event, he does well. Yep. So good stuff, for sure. Yeah. Got any more you know, closing thoughts on Legacy? Legacy's great. <laughs> I can't wait to play it again. Are you going to Columbus? Are you going to be able to? Yes. Okay. Yep. You, Heading up you to Columbus. going to play Legacy in that? No, I, I right. Jody's got that one covered, that's, I'm pretty sure. That's fair. Okay, if you're playing with those um, guys again, then yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. I, I am going to work with Jody, I think, to try to convince him to play Post. Okay. I think Post is really good right now. We just need to find a way to be able to beat the the Loam decks consistently. Mm-hmm. But if anybody's going to be able to find out how to beat Loam decks, I think it's Jody. He's right. got a lot of experience with those. Right. The best the best position for trying to beat a deck is being an expert at the deck. So. <laughs> right, yeah. Because I think that if Eldrazi posts can find a, a solution to losing to these Wasteland Loam decks, mm-hmm. then it just has all of its bases covered. So that that's that's pretty interesting. Cool. But no, I'm going to be working on New Standard. I've got some... Some brews. It's a very exciting time. <laughs> we will, we, you know, we're not really talking about that this week, yeah. but we're about to, you know, as soon as we finish recording, I'm about to head over to the store, meet up with some friends, and jam some Week Zero decks. Perfect. And, uh, you know, we will have things to report next week for yeah. sure. 
But this week, we are going to spend some more time talking about, you know, this meta topic. Worlds was this past weekend. Yep. And if kinda, you didn't know. If, which you might not have, honestly. <laughs> right. As, as insane as that might sound. And, you know, the big story coming out of Worlds was that JRT chose to boycott the tournament. Yeah. Uh, Worlds fired with 23 people out of 24 slots and possibly the most popular player in the tournament was not there, was not on camera. He sort of posted kind of a manifesto on Reddit, became the second highest upvoted post in the history of the Magic TCG subreddit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think got a lot of traction, got a lot of attention. And uh, a lot of his criticisms were, I, I think, well thought out and, mm-hmm. and well taken. And I think we should just sort of run through what he's talking about and sort of our impressions. We're from a very different position. You know, both of us are grinding SCG events or trying to get on the PT and and that sort of thing. So we're in a different spot from him. But a lot of the criticisms still rang pretty true to me, Mm -hmm. both as a player and as a viewer of events. Yeah. And so I think they're they're worth spending some attention and some time on and uh, sort of seeing what that's about. So... His main criticisms, I'm just going to go ahead and pull up the post. Yeah. So he, he named like six primary criticisms, which first that Watsi, you know, doesn't pay pro players a living wage. And he qualified that by saying, yes, that's not like a hard requirement. They don't have to, but they're trying to sell this idea of, you know, the million dollar magic pro tour is what it was called originally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an idea that you can be a professional magic player use that if you're good enough that can be the job that you do the second point is that wizards doesn't promote its players particularly well he also has issues with watsi's communication with players the number of pro tour invites that go out to the player base he has criticisms of coverage and finally the lack of transparency and the allowing of some kind of notorious cheaters to continue playing the game is so so these are all the sort of problems that he had that caused him to sit out a tournament and i i don't necessarily completely agree with all of the points that he made but i think that one thing that i most people can agree on is that it is like absolute 100 percent respect for his commitment to making this this point like worlds is a tournament with twelve and a half thousand dollars of equity that he just gave away up to a hundred thousand dollars you know as prize for first place and probably more importantly for him was the fact that, number one, a top four finish might solidify a Hall of Fame resume for him, which gives sort of permanent rewards going forward for the rest of his life, and that it's free pro points for next year. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of like an exclusive pro points club. Nobody wins player of the year unless they were in Worlds the yeah. year before. You know, like the year that LSV top aided three pro tours, he was third in the player of the year race because he didn't have Worlds pro points. <laughs> right. So big sacrifice on Jerry's part. So clearly he is taking this very seriously. And yeah, this is the big news in Magic at the moment, I think. Yeah. So I don't know. Initial thoughts about this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I love and respect Jerry a lot. Not alone. I, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I definitely don't think I'm alone in that. He it's he he makes it very clear where his his morals stand in regards to a lot of things. So I definitely have to respect that. And I, I really hope that his actions with uh, boycotting worlds and making this post uh, end up being very effective and and getting the message across. But I I do have a fear, I guess, that not a ton is going to come from this. Of course, I, I agree with everything he says, and I really respect his dedication to, to be able to make this message. 
and I hope it. I hope that this makes a difference. But I, I've kind of, you know, after reading, you know, Watsi's initial response to it, it didn't give me a lot of hope that this was going to change their minds in particular. I think that it's doing a lot of good to, you know, spread the word to the community at large. And there might be some players who, you know, aren't as enfranchised and don't don't really know these things that are going on Mm -hmm. at a certain level particularly like Watsi's communication you know we we do see their lack of communication show up in a lot of areas such as like the pptq schedule is going up in 10 days and we have no idea what it looks like it's not posted anywhere right right you know you have to like look at individual stores to see if they have one coming up yeah if you want to go to i know that there is a near relatively nearby store that's having a pptq in in two weeks yeah having a sealed one that's literally all I know about but right. my potential PPT. And you heard from that, right I'm now. assuming through either word of mouth or, you know, the store. Just because I follow the store on Facebook. Right, yeah. Like, the store itself. So, yeah, that kind of translating up into other, you know, problems with, you know, Watsi communicating with the players, especially at these, like, premiere events. There was a whole thing about how, you know, Ben Stark's girlfriend wasn't initially allowed to be at the event hall at Worlds, even though she, like, flew in to support him. See, and um, this is an insane problem to me. Right. I mean, number one, it is crazy that they sent an email out to all the, all all 24, it's not very many players, 24 players, and that they had to respond by a certain deadline to have their people, their partners, their parents, whatever, allowed into a room where they could watch the coverage together on a TV. <laughs> right. So... I don't understand why there was a deadline at all. I don't understand why there was difficulty. Eventually, they fixed it, which, good, I'm glad. Mm-hmm. But it's insane that there was a problem at all. It is crazy to me that Worlds is not a live spectated event. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, th- and, and I think this goes to kind of the heart of uh, one of Jerry's main points, which is that Wizards doesn't promote its players. And, and we can really see the difference between like the pro tour and the SCG tour where the SCG tour has names. They, you know, they, they develop their pros. We have storylines about people. We know that, you know, Todd Stevens likes to play, you know, mid range value decks, even in modern. And like we, we, people show up and Cedric and Pat and, and, and Patrick Sullivan, like know what kind of decks they're likely to be playing. And we'll be surprised when they come out with something new that they, that they don't usually bring to the table. We get narratives about these players that really doesn't happen. You watch a pro tour and a lot of the segments that get put up a lot, you know, I I get to hear the same Wizards of the Coast employees talking about how they started playing Magic and how great of a game Magic is, which doesn't really sell me on like this is a really exciting thing that I want to be watching. Like somebody telling me how great the game they work on is, (laughs) is not a great ad, you know, and this, this goes out to more than just the segments on coverage this goes out to how the tournament is presented i saw at cube april on twitter tweeted out pictures of the the pokemon tcg world championship and it's a huge convention yeah there's you know hundreds or thousands of people sitting and watching the games on a uh, a big projected display there's a giant pikachu hanging up (laughs) like there's tons of people playing side events around there's there's like all this merch and stuff it looks like a party Mm -hmm. and why I mean, I'm sure it cost money. I'm sure there was some money coming in by the spectators being there and buying things. And, and I think it, it it feels unrealistic for me to say, why do, don't we have that for our worlds? 
But the only reason it feels unrealistic is because my expectations for Watsi to do those things correctly is just so low at this point. Yeah. And that's troubling. Like, that feels really bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're just kind of seeing a continued trend of decisions being made by some ghost figures at Watsi who we don't Mm -hmm. know who they are. Yeah. And, And it seems like consistently these these decisions are just so detached from what the players want, Mm -hmm. um, what the people who are immediately affected by these things want. Uh, And I think that that likely is coming from a significant lack of communication between the people who are making these decisions and the player base. And to be fair, I do know that there is a current pro-player committee that is being talked to by somebody Mm -hmm. at WotC, um, about these types of decisions, and I think that's a good step. You know, I don't think that the Watsi is is just making statements that are air. I I do think that there is some sort of weight to them, and that they are working together. But after we keep on seeing decisions like Worlds format being Dominaria seal or Dominaria draft and Old Standard, it seems like it's such an obvious thing to to do better on. <laughs> Not only was it Dominaria draft, but the team series final was just Guilds of Ravnica team sealed. Right. Yeah. They had the packs there. Right. Like, yeah. They could have done so much more with it. it um, and I was, I like, I my heart was kind of thumping watching the first match because I was like, I get to see freaking John Finkel playing with this new set of cards, like the best player in history, playing mm-hmm. with the brand new cards for, for honestly, a serious prize. Yeah. Like, for the first time. Even, yeah. Which is, you know, pretty cool. That to was see. so cool. Like, like, why. Why didn't I get to see all the guys in the world championship itself play with those cards? Like right. that would have been in- incredibly neat, and it would have been such a fitting. Like we're going back to Ravnica, and now like watch your pros play with these cards for a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. For sure, yeah. I I mean I do see downsides of playing with a format that hasn't existed ye- quite yet at yeah. a, at a big event because professional player perspective is that you really want to get in a bunch of testing mm-hmm. and you want to be prepared for these events. Then, um, but. Like, why not ask? Why not pull the world's competitors and yeah, something? Yeah, right. There's you know? only 24 of them. Right. You know, <laughs> let's just talk to them and, and, you know, see what they're... See if you can come to any sort of conclusions about what they want. So, yeah, I mean, generally the lack of communication between wizards and uh, just the people, I think, is something that needs to be worked on. I think that the the new pro system or the, the cycles is kind of the biggest example of that. Yeah. Nobody knows how it works. There is, like community made spreadsheets that keep track of points and those are the only ways of figuring out like what you need to do at any point to stay silver or gold or whatever and the fact that that keeps on changing and then like the players who are like you know pretty enfranchised in that and like are very affected by the differences between gold and silver or whatever yeah some i've heard that sometimes they make changes and it's never announced anywhere and then people who are like thought they were gold suddenly find something else out and and that's a pretty significant difference right And it, it, it also changes how, like, the invites work. You know, like, silver was designed to be like, hey, once a year, you get your silver invite to a pro tour. But then the fact that it's cycle-based actually screws that up. And so you get, like, your silver invite, and then, like, like it's really confusing, but it you kind of are getting half of the number of invitations from silver now just because of the way dates work and stuff. I, I can't explain it because it's really confusing, and I don't know how it works. But right. So it's, it's just, it, it feels like things just don't really get thought out 
and then they get executed. You know, now yeah. we, we know we're getting two extra pro tours next year. That's awesome. Yeah. We have no idea how the qualifications are going to work for it because they only gave us half of an announcement. <laughs> right. So frustrating. Yeah. I saw somebody pose this question on Twitter recently where I think it might have been Matt Sperling who, who tweeted out, I wonder what would happen if we gave the job of a, of creating some sort of tournament structure and like pro system mm-hmm. to like another company who had Just nothing, had no that. idea about what the current system looks like mm-hmm. and how they would do it differently from the ground up. Yeah. Because I think that one of the problems that we're running into is that the system that they're kind of building on right now is very iterative. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. they have this like really, really, really old system that they created a long time ago. And then every year they've updated it a little bit and then updated it and updated it and updated it kind of yeah. over the course of the time. But I think that that whole like iterative process of, you know, taking this really old system and like tweaking a few things here and there. We get a lot of artifacts. Yeah, you know, and and it just kind of doesn't feel very cohesive right sure. now. You know, it's just it becomes a really complex and there's all sorts of different like weird ways that things work and nobody really understands everything unless you like have studied it a lot or whatever. <laughs> I think like Thiago Saparito or something makes a post every time they update the system like explaining how it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the fact that he has to do that for the pro players is crazy to yep. me. It's good that that exists or whatever, but yeah, I think that, you know, I, I think that it would be interesting to see what would happen if, if they just kind of like from the ground up tried to, you know, build something cleaner. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a big example of that is the using using the pro system, the, the pro level system, and then they introduce bronze as sort of like, I think it was designed to be kind of like an onboarding into being a pro from a, you know, low level, but it's, it's really difficult to hit bronze without at least a pro tour. It's it's so hard to hit bronze with just GPs. You right. know, that's five, eleven, and fours. Or yeah. you know, you can replace one or two of those with a twelve and three if you do really well, and then you only need a ten and five for the other slots. But like that's a lot of GPs, and that's a lot of extremely consistent success. And it, it's hard to go to that many GPs, you know, if that's the level of reward that you're you're looking at. So you know, what I would like to see. And, and, you know, one of the kind of troubling things about the announcement of, hey, we're going to have more pro tours next year, but there are going to be fewer slots per pro tour. That means that we're still going to have the same number of Hall of Famers and Platinum Pros and Gold Pros in each of these pro tours. They are necessarily reducing the slots that go to PTQ winners and, and you know, I guess not GP top eighters because there's going to be about the same number of GPs, but effectively they are reducing the number of like blue envelope qualifications that go to these pro tours. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's tough. I mean, as someone who is not on the pro tour, that kind of hurts. That feels not great because that's something that I would like to do. And every time they make it harder, this kind of dream of mine gets a little farther away. What I would really like to see is some sort of, you know, gamify the system a little bit, like make it fun to go to PTQs. You know, if, if we get rid of PTQs and RPTQs and we go back to like PTQ, a PTQ system of some sort, make it so that it's not just first place or last place for every tournament, you know, mm-hmm. give us like PTQ points or something like that. Let it like reward consistent success with, you know, something like, like let us be building towards something. So it's not just every tournament at the end of it, you get nothing or you get everything. I don't know exactly how that system looks, but 
clearly we can't just build that by making small changes on the old system. Yeah. I think we got to construct something very new to to make the the pro tour system something that we can actually reasonably aspire to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I don't have plenty of work to do before I deserve to be on the pro tour. Because I definitely, with my level of, especially like in-game tournament play, like I don't think that I'm there yet. Mm -hmm. But I would like to be able to map out a plan for getting there that's not just like spike really hard. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Yeah, for sure. So kind of a lot of stuff to do with all that. Yep. The, you know, in terms of like coverage, I do want to kind of give credit where credit's due. And I, I do really think that Grand Prix coverage has uh, taken a big leap in the past couple of months. It has, especially with regards to making a large percentage of the stream coverage of games. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was wonderful. that was a huge difference for sure. Um, yeah, the 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 least amount of dead air that you can have, mm-hmm. the better. And yeah, they've just been putting magic on stream all the time. They have many backup matches. I think that there are still definitely areas of improvement that they can have, but they're trying things, and the yeah. fact that they're trying things makes me feel happy about it yeah i mean i i certainly have my fair share of coverage related criticisms i think sure. it's, it's a shame that like pro tours and worlds don't have that same density of magic gameplay um yeah it's it's a little bit frustrating you know like a bunch of the segments that they put on like the enter the battlefield segments that they had for some of the players which i think are a great step and should they should have tons of that stuff there mm-hmm. should be tons of documentary coverage of players yeah like we should be following javier dominguez around with a camera <laughs> right <laughs> like every time he goes and plays like edh with his friends like you know sure like like I, I think that that coverage should exist, but I don't think that the world's stream is necessarily the place for that. I think yeah. those videos should get posted on Twitter and like used to pub the world championship, which a bunch of people didn't know was happening this right. past weekend and only knew about it because of Jerry T not playing it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the number of people who, who posted on Jerry T things, uh, oh, thanks to this post, I now know that world's is happening this right. weekend. And the post went up on Friday morning, which was the same day that it started. Yep. And people even like at the end of Friday were like, oh, day one of that happened today. Like <laughs> nobody had any clue. It's, it's, abs- <laughs> it's psychotic. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Right. Th- so, there were, you know, like I follow all the Wizards accounts and I barely saw a handful of tweets about what was coming on. It should have been like every day. Like here's a player profile. Like mm-hmm. this is what this player wants to accomplish at the, the world championship. Like Shahar Shenhar, this is his, you know, he he played in it t- twice before and he won both times. Like he's back. Is he going <laughs> to like be, is he going to go three for three? Right. Uh, like Javier Dominguez, he lost in the finals last year. Like the fact that Javier lost in the finals last year and won this year, like that's mm-hmm. a huge, super cool story. Yeah, that's awesome. Like that should be like plastered on the Wizards site. Like, of course, none of this is to take credit away from the players. Like I was pretty psyched to see Javier win. Like, yeah, that was did a awesome. great job. Yeah, Javier, I mean, I, th- I feel like has been significantly underrated for the past year. He's and just good every tournament. He, didn't he top four, top four the mocks, mm-hmm. finals of the last Worlds? Yep. And he won this Worlds. And he has like a Pro Tour top eight. Yep. At least one Pro Tour top eight this past year. Yep, this year, yeah. That's crazy. He's really good. Yeah. And they couldn't they couldn't get his first name right on stream, Javier. Yeah, okay. like like it, they they got corrected in the middle of the broadcast and then decided not to start saying it the correct way because it was too hard. And then for the rest of the stream, Riley just called him the Spaniard, I guess, so he wouldn't mess his name up, um, which is not. <laughs> I I don't know. I have problems with this. I also had problems with the, like eight different ways 
they were trying to pronounce Jagosh Kowalski's name. Mm-hmm. Like, not that everybody needs to say Jagosh necessarily. You sure. could Americanize it or Westernize it, but get it consistent. Get his permission to say it a specific way. Don't yeah. just like, I, I like that sort of stuff makes it feel like it's not a professional production that yeah. we're watching. Yeah. And it 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 sort of doubles down on it makes any criticisms, any other criticisms people have of the event, like feel more real because you turn on the stream and you're like, look at this. Mm-hmm. you know, kind of low-level production that we've got going here. Right, yeah. Yeah, definitely some some things to be thinking about and things to be working on improving. You know, I think that Jerry's message is definitely a good step. Getting the word out and getting Watsy's attention is also probably a good thing. Um, so, yeah. you know, uh, fingers crossed that something happens from all this. I definitely hope so. I mean, that that response that they gave to him was less than inspiring mm-hmm. i mean you can you can go read it for yourself i don't really want to read out the whole thing here i think you could see that rich hagan d- did not feel particularly good reading it out on stream um <laughs> yikes <laughs> big yikes but it it pretty much it, it wasn't even like we hear you it was we hear that you want to be heard and right yeah and basically like we're already doing all this stuff to fix this mm-hmm. or, or, or not even really acknowledging that there was a problem it's not it wasn't really an apology and it was barely even an acknowledgement um i think to to me from my perspective and what i want them to do i would have been happier if they didn't say anything at all in response this is yeah. to me worse than not acknowledging it but we'll see i mean I don't know what's going to happen going forward. We don't know what, I mean, we don't know when our PPTQs are this coming season and we don't know what the next season of qualifying events are. We don't know what changes are coming. Hopefully some of them are good, but there's, there's rough waters on the horizon. We just saw on Twitter, a bunch of, whether it's name pros, former pros, several people just tweeted like, Hey, I've been playing the artifact closed beta for the past four months and it's the best game i've ever played uh and they're about to have a million dollar first prize tournament as their first big tournament in the first quarter of next year right uh like like these games are coming for the title and and if wizards is not ready to make some serious changes like you know if i'm if i'm a pv if i'm a a javier dominguez if i'm a, a huey why am I going to spend my time playing this game and not the game that is willing to put up money and, you know, put up a million dollar first prize tournament as its first tournament and then go from there. Right. I'm not saying that the MTG grindcast is going to become the artifact grindcast, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, definitely one of the problems of, or, or I guess one of the results of wizards, not, you know, treating its player base very well is that the loyalty that could be there is is a little strained, mm-hmm. um, which you know can have impact on you know what they decide to do. Yep. So, well, yeah. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, that's all we can do. But good to talk about. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on this and and sort of acknowledging it going forward. I think that I think that covered most of my thoughts on all of that stuff. So, yeah. We could talk about wizards selling boxes. Straight to Amazon, but I think that's not a super in-depth topic. Maybe if people are super interested in it, but it doesn't apply super hard right now. Yeah. Because I do want to take enough time and sort of, you know, sum up and put a little put a little punctuation mark on my whirlwind year-long <laughs> Magic the Gathering tour through Europe. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so for those of you who, you know, weren't paying super close attention to my personal life and <laughs> what I'm doing, I moved to Germany about a year ago to teach at a university. Uh, fortunately, my teaching job really only required me to do things one or two days a week, which gave me plenty of time to travel around and hit up lots of European GPs. And so that was kind of my schedule for the past year as I would hang out, do teaching, try to get as much practice in on Magic Online as I can, and then I would fly out to a GP. And it was fun. It was a super cool experience and definitely kind of experienced Magic in a way that I never have. And I definitely played in more big tournaments in that one year than I ever have in any specific year. If you look at my like Planeswalker point record, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's like a big spike in this past year because I just I, I went to a bunch of GPs. You were doing it. You were grinding. Yeah. And uh, don't have as much success as, as I would like to show for it. You know, I didn't come out with any any 12 and threes even, you know, like part of the things that I learned about myself uh, were that. You know, I, I really need like a, a an in-person testing group, I think, to get comfortable with a format. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I would show up and, and shuffle up a deck and not be super comfortable with the like physical managing yeah, yeah, my yeah. hollow ones or whatever. It was a little difficult for me. I didn't do a good job of uh, establishing, you know, like a relationship with local players who actually did have a game store in the little town that I was living in. It was a nice little game store. But, you know, partially because of, like, language barriers and partially because of, you know, having to go bicycle to the store when it was raining out on a a chilly Friday night, um, I didn't really make close contacts with people at the store. Um, So I was kind of on my own for tournament prep and uh, also on my own for traveling to tournaments, which has its own kind of ups and downs. So, so you know, one thing that I am really looking forward to about being back in the States is that I have people here that I can do, you know, physical testing with. And yeah, worst yeah. case, I can go over to Atomic and play competitive modern tournaments every Thursday and, and be forced to play with my physical cards. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, getting the reps in, you know, with the actual cards, I, you know, I've talked about this before, but I think it's really important. I, I try to go to as many just like local th- events during the week as I can. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not playing a tournament, I'm, I'm showing up at FNM and, and jamming. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're back for that. Yeah. I'm super excited to have you uh, in the ring again. <laughs> Should be fun. It would also be good to have people looking over my shoulder and yelling at me when I'm screwing up. I think I need that. <laughs> yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Because I'm definitely missing some of my own mis- sequencing mistakes yeah, and stuff. Right. And I mean, because that's the hardest thing to do is, you know, it's if you're making these mistakes, it's because you're not recognizing right, it, right? Right, right. So uh, having somebody else there is, is definitely pretty crucial for sure. I think it's the same thing where, like, people who are really bad at something are less likely to realize that they are bad at it because mm-hmm. it's it uses like the same areas of the brain and the same skills to yeah. recognize whether you're good at something. <laughs> this is giant catch 22. Right. But I I did and and this is you know this was overall a very very positive experience. One of the really cool things was pretty early on uh one of the the early GPs that I went to, I think it was the team sealed tournament Maybe it was in Amsterdam, but I uh, ran into a couple of guys who were listeners of the show, and there was uh, this kind of group of group of guys from Scotland who kind of try to make it out to as many of the European GPs as they can get to, and it was so cool to meet them early on and then just see them. At, you know, they wouldn't all make it to every GP, but 
there would usually be at least a couple of them. Yeah. And so even if I wasn't going with anybody that I knew, I had a decent shot of just having some company there. Yeah. Um, native English speakers helped too. Right, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> um, assuming that's a thing for sure. But so so that that was a really cool just like traveling around experience and, and knowing that I would be, you know, running into a cool group of people that I can share bad beat stories with <laughs> if I'm not being as... I try to be very restrained with bad <laughs> stories, but sometimes they come out. But it's hard. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. Magic has always been very, very good at one thing. And I think that that one thing is bringing people together. Magic has a culture. Because we talk about the, the magic community all the time. And I've been, I'm back in school and I'm learning about American Sign Language. And there's also like deaf culture is like very... You know, it's it's a real culture, and the people in that community are uh, are kind of brought together by that mm. common factor. And I think that the same thing, kind of, I, I was kind of drawing parallels to the Magic the Gathering community and how we've really developed a a pretty cool you know culture that we have, where you know the people who play this game can relate on that on that axis with with other people, and it brings people together. You know, people are coming to these tournaments, these conventions, all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's cool how you can go to Germany and then play in these tournaments all over Europe and still find those people. I think that's awesome. Right. And I think maybe part of it is kind of like communicate, you know, within the deaf community, people are communicating in sign language. Mm-hmm. And so you have this like thing that you, this method of communication that sort of helps within this circle you know be a right. unifying thing yeah yeah uh and with magic you know i i quickly become friends with people if right. i am talking about sideboarding decisions right. and exactly stuff like that. yeah 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 um right and that's you know that's kind of what i'm talking about so i've i've experienced that here in the united states it's cool that you you're experiencing that in, you know around the world yeah it was really um, nice yeah that's that's awesome um i also you know experienced some of the kind of negative parts of the magic community a little bit okay. only to a very small extent yeah. but you know if you are active on magic twitter um or you know magic internet in general <laughs> yeah. like you know there's some bad apples in any yeah. community and especially in gaming there are people who especially surrounding you know I- issues of gender issues of uh, of race and that sort of yeah. thing and we have some negative influences there and and it's weird. It's different in Europe, like the kind of racism and stuff that you encounter. You know, I look very white. Mm-hmm. I, nobody was particularly racist against me, but sometimes that makes people think that you're like in their club and they're willing to like talk to you in ways that are not great. Big yikes. Yeah. And and in some European countries, you know, in the US, especially in the circles that I move in, people are pretty aware of, you know, like... Critical race theory is something that a lot of people have kind of internalized mm-hmm. um, because of our particular relationship with racism and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. And in some European cultures, it's not, they're much more homogenous, so there's not quite the level of awareness. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it. I, I tried to be, the couple of times I ran into it, I tried to be pretty vocal about saying like, hey, this isn't okay. Um, sometimes I failed, sometimes I didn't do as good a job of that as, yeah. as I would want to do. And I don't really have any place in particular that I'm, I'm going with this, but <laughs> I, I think it's mostly just that like gaming culture and the gaming community in general can be just this hugely positive force and give a home to people who don't have a home 
necessarily anywhere else. Sure. And I, I consistently find a home wherever I go. Yeah. And I just want to make sure that other people are, you know, opening the doors and, and letting everybody find a home and, and doing your part to make sure that it's a welcoming community is, is really important. One kind of weird thing was I, I kind of gave up on PPTQing just a couple of months in. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of it was just because in general, it's like kind of a hassle to keep up with where PPTQs are and, and yeah. keep track of the schedule. It's easier here because I'll usually have somebody text me to be like, <laughs> hey, are you going to this PPTQ? And I'll be like, I didn't know about it, but right. I'm free. So Yeah, it is, it is surprising how word of mouth is like one of the major ways that I find out about <laughs> local events. Yeah, I got it. Like my... On on my calendar, I have in in two days. I'm I have like a couple of hours set aside to make my magic schedule and just yeah, like yeah. incorporate all the uh, magic online stuff and opens and GPs and hopefully PPTQs. But man, we just, we don't have that schedule yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so yeah, it was a little more difficult, and especially because you don't quite have the hey, get into a car with with two friends and head over to a a PPTQ that's 45 minutes away. I didn't really have access to that. So usually what I would do was get on a train and go. And a couple of times I would meet up with people that I knew at the PPTQ, and that was nice. Yeah. But that wasn't really an option for a lot of them. And then the idea of, like, you know, spending all this time on a train to go there, only get anything at all if I win, get back on the train and go back home. Yeah. It's a little different if you're going to a PPTQ with friends because then your EV is not just wrapped up in the prize that you get from the tournament. Um, and I, I I try to be outgoing. I try to talk to people, but the language barrier was very much there. But most people did speak reasonable English, especially within Germany, especially within the community of 20-something-year-old Magic players, but still can be kind of difficult and intimidating to strike up a conversation, um, even with Magic as sort of the bridge for that. I did spend a, a fair number of PPTQs kind of like reading a book in the corner between rounds, Yeah, um, which is fine. Like, I'll do that, but it's not quite the, you know, Saturday experience that you, you want if you're going to be going and playing Magic, so... Yeah, for sure. And especially because the tables at local game stores in Germany are just <laughs> horrendous. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I, I actually played significantly worse in at least, like, two of the PPTQs that I played in. It is interesting how those factors uh, have a pretty large impact on on your ability to, to play well um, that you wouldn't imagine would have I, a factor. I really wouldn't have yeah. imagined it, but... They're these super, like, narrow tables with basically enough room for, like, if you stack, like, magic cards vertically, you can go maybe five and a half magic cards. <laughs> so if you think about, like, having my lands and then my creatures right. and then, like, a little bit of space and then their creatures are right there. Yeah, yeah. And there just really wasn't room to, like, build out my board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, I, just the brain space used on, like, trying to keep everything neat. Like, yeah. Like screwed me up pretty badly. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I, I played some teamer mirrors, really not, not to the best of my ability. Yeah, yeah. And, and those mirrors were hard, so not playing well costs you the game very easily. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a pretty weird and unexpected part of the experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In general, GPs pretty similar from from the US to Europe. It's it's CFB running all of them, so the experience is very similar. The judging staffs were super professional and did a great job. Uh, a lot of the tournaments, uh, you know, 
some of the standard tournaments, the rounds went pretty long because we were in a Teferi-based standard format. Yeah. But that is not the fault of <laughs> the, the event staff. Right. Um, in general, the tournaments ran... The, the higher level events that I played ran pretty quickly and, and pretty smoothly. That was nice. Um, the the number of vendors at the GPs was double thumbs up to that. There were usually yeah. seven or eight vendors um, yeah. and usually at least a couple that went through the trouble of bringing whole binders full of like one and two dollar cards mm-hmm. and usually one there that you could buy your cartouches of ambition from <laughs> right. if, you, yeah. if you didn't have them. Yeah, um, always important to be able to have that one vendor that has, like, the random comments. Really important. And, uh, yes, I'm paying a euro for Cartouche of Ambition, but I can register <laughs> my 75. So yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I appreciate the service. Yeah, I was uh, running around the event hall looking for a Meteor Golem at, this, at the last open that I went to. Oh, God, you pulled one out when I was here last week. So <laughs> I know, I it? forgot it. it was on the table. <laughs> <laughs> Tragedy. Oh, yeah, for sure. I left it on my desk. So I ended up having to buy one for a dollar. Yeah, um, and that is a huge upgrade over Spine of Isha. So you gotta, you gotta play it. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was great. I, I never, I never ended up playing against um, uh, Show and Tell, so I, I didn't yeah. have to bring it in. But oh well, um, I was happy I, I, I had it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yep. Those, uh, those random comments are always funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, the one GP that I played humans at. Uh, the humans deck that I borrowed did not have militia buglers, so I had to go find them. Yeah, and they were unfindable. <laughs> oh no! So I paid like eleven euros for a foil Russian militia bugler. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's a thing that I own now, and <laughs> I don't know what I'm ever going to do with it. Well, now you got a foil. I mean, that card is probably going to be played in humans for for a while now. For a so. while. Yep. But the uh, the one foil Russian one. You know, I'm yeah. not super into having that in well, my deck of yeah. 59 non-foil cards. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So, you um, know. Let's see. What else? Stores were kind of interesting in general. Space is at a premium in European countries. Yeah. Especially, like, retail space. So the stores tended to be much on the much smaller side. Clearly, the space that they put out tables in they did not have tables in there most of the time um so it could be a little bit cramped playing a pptq in, in a store mm-hmm. but you know we made the best of it and it was certainly nobody's fault uh, retail space yeah. is incredibly expensive in, right. in these cities but it was kind of cool like in general gaming stores just look like gaming stores yeah no matter where you go in the world <laughs> it's the same <laughs> well that's good to hear I was trying to do videos, uh, and some of you may have watched them, but I was trying to do some videos, kind of like vlogging my tournament experiences. Um, kind of gave those up after six or so. It ended up being, uh, you know, it's a reasonable amount of work, mm-hmm. but kind of the tough thing was like, I'd get back from the tournament and then I'd feel guilty <laughs> until I had finished editing the video. Yeah. Um, and even though if I actually buckled down and like got up Monday morning and just started, you know, wrote my script out, did my voiceover, edited stuff together, it would usually only take like four or five hours. But uh, I have troubles with procrastination <laughs> and uh, that just like constant feeling of like, God, I really got to do this video, but I'm just not doing it for some reason. Mm-hmm. It was pretty tough. Yeah. That's not a Europe exclusive <laughs> thing, but. That's... Yeah. The procrastination follows you wherever you go. So <laughs> yeah. no, so, I, I, I feel that pretty hard. So yeah. but that was part of my experience. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was a really awesome, just kind of like, you know, learning experience, yeah. both about yourself and, you know, the cultures and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that's what those kind of things are good for is, you know, just taking it all in and seeing how we can use these lessons in the future. Yeah. And I think it kind of really cemented in for me how much I enjoy going to magic tournaments with Mm -hmm. my friends. Yeah. Like I would, if I, when I got to the GP and I realized that like some of those Scottish guys or some of the other guys that I knew were there, I'd kind of light up a little bit because I, you know, Oh, okay. This is going to be a fun one. Like we got, we got people to talk to. We we got got the crew. Yeah. Like I'm going to go get beers with these people and it'll be good. The times when I went to a city and really knew nobody there, Mm -hmm. you know, there's levels of enjoyment to be had, especially because these are cities that I had never been to and were super interesting to walk around and and go see things. But definitely had a lot of those like music video moments (laughs) walking and and feeling like, oh man, like I just don't know anybody. (laughs) All by myself. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of feel like, like, man, I just don't know anybody in the world anymore, yeah. kind of, and... Uh, right. Makes me miss it. Yeah, makes me miss it, and and I, I cannot wait to go take some road trips to some Opens and some GPs, like, yeah. that is that is the plan from here, and I'm, I'm very excited. I could not be more excited. Excellent. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm also excited. We've got some stuff coming up. Pre-release this weekend. Yeah. I'll be there. Yeah. Um, I didn't even play in the last pre-release, because I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'll just go and play with German cards. And... <laughs> it might be tough. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, you know, pre-release this weekend. You get to be be local again, hang out with all the dudes here. Yeah, that should be fun. I'm hype. Uh, what's your next big tournament that you're going to? Um, I, I got to make my schedule. I yeah yeah. I don't have a team for Columbus. Columbus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if if two people were just like, hey, we need a we need a person, um, then I would be super down to play standard or something in Columbus. Ideally, standard. That's that's where I feel like you know I could I could get an edge because I'm about to start working real hard on standard. So, you know, if, if that were to just sort of work out and fall into my lap a little bit, but I also haven't really planned it out. So, yeah, I'm not really sure what the next big tournament is, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be grinding. That's the plan. Very good. So that kind of was our Patreon question because you know, <laughs> uh, Lee sort of uh, reminded me that I should talk about this a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, no Patreon question of the week this week, but I think that should sort of fulfill that requirement. Um, yeah, I think this is a solid episode length after three and a half hours <laughs> yeah, for after sure. editing last week. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Well, next week we will 100% have reports on week zero standard. That is that that is exciting. That is what I'm pumped about. And, and that's what we will be bringing to you um, for now. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to find us online, you can find our website at mtggrindcast.com. Uh, find us on Patreon if you'd like to lend us some support, get some tokens, hang out in the Discord, patreon.com slash mtggrindcast, or just go to our site. Um, our site also has links to coaching with Collins, which I hear is going quite well. Yep. So it's been pretty great. I've been getting more and more uh, clients, getting really good feedback. People seem to like it. So yeah. Uh, come hang out with me. We can talk about magic. We can play magic. And this means that if you start your coaching with Collins now, you will be getting a more mature, experienced co- <laughs> uh, coaching situation than, than if you had done it once. So it's you know the perfect time. Yeah, could not be sure. a better time. Yeah, I've been I've been really enjoying it. So um, so yeah, definitely definitely look up that that page on our website. Yeah. Sure. Um, you can also just contact us at our Twitters. I'm tweeting from at MTG underscore Grindcast. And Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Yeah, that's it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good
Have a great week. Peace.